volvieron. Los McNugget Buddies are back at McDonald's. Y ahora tienen un nuevo look, diseñado por el streetwear designer Kerwin Frost. Cada buddy tiene su propio vibe, pero cuando el squad está completo, se ven fire. Complete your buddy squad ordenando the Kerwin Frost Box. Cada caja incluye un buddy, tu elección de una Big Mac o unos Timpy's Chicken McNuggets, papitas medianas y un refresco mediano. Disponible desde el 11 de diciembre. Para pa pa pa. En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias. Whether you're buying a new car, a used car, or refinancing your current car, FedChoice Federal Credit Union could help save you money. FedChoice makes buying a car so easy that you can do everything right from your smartphone or on a computer. Become a member today and you can take advantage of their great rates and financing options. Find out more at FedChoice.org. That's FedChoice.org. Membership open to federal employees including contractors and their families. FedChoice Federal Credit Union insured by NCUA. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the Hill. Tom Fitzgerald here with you. Hey, this time on the Hill, uh, we're joined by a familiar face, a face you can't see because this is a podcast, and uh, a well-known figure here in Washington, D.C. Robert McCartney is the senior regional correspondent for The Washington Post, and uh, he's kind enough to join us on the Hill here today. How are you doing, Bob? I'm great. How are you? Happy uh, Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to you as well, too. Um, we uh, come to you. Uh, the middle of June, which, you know, it seems to me, Bob, there used to be a busy period in Washington politics, and then we would get to the summer and things would slow down. It doesn't seem like Not things slow down anymore. No, that's true. It sort of continues. I guess you do get a little bit of a break in August, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, depending on what's happening, uh, unless there's, you know, big developments of some sort, but no, things keep going right through right through the summer and i think this year especially with the Virgin big uh, virginia general assembly elections coming up in november uh, there's still a lot of interest and and a lot of uh, a lot of energy going on all right so let's get after that in virginia uh, virginia had a primary uh, this past week um the entire general assembly the uh, senate and the house of delegates is up for re-election uh, this november but this comes on the heels bob of just being a I, I think in our memory in Virginia, a period of time in politics like none other. We've had the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Ralph Northam, embroiled in a scandal over racist yearbook photos, uh, which he first admitted to and then the next day famously unadmitted to. Um, has still not been able to discern who was in these pictures or how they got on this yearbook. Then we have the Lieutenant Governor, Justin Fairfax, accused of sexual assault by not one but two women, uh, one at the Democratic National Convention in 2004, another while he was a student at Duke University. And then uh, the Attorney General, Mark Herring, on his own volition, came forward and said that he too had worn blackface while a student uh, in, in college. So that sets the scene for where Democrats in Virginia are. Then we tee up this primary last week what do we learn from this primary because it seems like there was a big push from the left on in the democratic party to push out democrats that were already entrenched right they didn't actually push out very many important democrats they didn't do it but they they, they, sure they came money close yeah it, they should the, the left showed its strength uh, and its sort of newfound energy in these Democratic primaries. They nearly knocked off uh, uh, Senator uh, Dick Sasselaw, who, of course, is the leader of the Democrats in the Senate. That, that would have been a you? huge... 
it surprised it. It did. It surprised me how strong the left was against mm-hmm. someone this experienced, this well known, and this powerful. Uh, it, I don't think it surprised me that much that he survived, uh, especially because he he didn't he took it seriously. That was very important. He didn't just ignore it and and figure that he was going to win the way he always won. He went out and campaigned hard and fought back and pushed back and and sort of signaled to constituents that he cared. And I think that's what saved him, basically. So he survived. The um, the the two big victories for the left were really in the uh, prosecutor's races in Arlington County and Fairfax County, where long time, long serving, experienced uh, prosecutors were ousted in the primary by left wingers who basically said the we want a new approach to law enforcement. Uh, Law enforcement is too punitive right now. We're putting too many people in prison. This is encouraging racial inequities in law enforcement. And we want a, a new approach. Uh, these challengers were uh, well-funded by George Soros, uh, the liberal, uh, the very, very rich uh, uh, liberal who has paid for a lot of campaigns over the years. He's sort of the, the Koch brothers of the left, you might say. Mm-hmm. And they, they guess, so they got a lot of money for, for their races, and that played a role. Um, the of course the the, high, the highest profile race was the Joe Morrissey race where Joe Morrissey, the uh, who was once in prison uh, while he was a delegate, uh, won the Senate primary and he will be representing a jurisdiction outside of Richmond. But that was not so much ideological as personality driven. Tell people about Morrissey because he went. To, you know, he didn't go to jail for the thing most politicians go for when they go to jail. He went to jail for contributing to the delinquency of a minor, a minor who now, by the way, is a grown woman and his wife. Right. Uh, he was uh, he had an affair when he was in his 50s with a woman in, who was 17 at the time. So he was convicted for that. And as I mentioned, he was serving in jail while he was serving as a delegate. He subsequently married her. They have kids together. Uh, he basically ran on a, I'm, you know, I've paid my debt to society, and this is a redemption story. Uh, he's very well-known and very well-liked in his district, partly because of his legal work on behalf of low-income people. And he, so he won. And he, he is, he's a maverick and very independent-minded, and the, you know, he's not, he's liberal, uh, he's not as liberal as the as some Democrats are on some issues like abortion. And I mean, he's pro-choice, but he's uh, definitely sort of skews to the center on abortion issues, charter schools. Mm-hmm. He's uh, he's sort of uh, he's he's not a it's very hard to categorize Joe Morrissey, except as a very outspoken, maverick, independent minded a guy with this scandalous pass. If he, assuming he wins, which he should, because there's no Republican running against him in this heavily Democratic district, uh, he will be a thorn in the side of the Democratic leadership because he is not afraid to challenge them. He's not afraid to speak out, and he gets a lot of attention. Where's the Virginia Democratic Party now? Because here's Ralph Northam, the governor, who has pretty much been relegated to ghost status, although he will go out and he will make an appearance infrequently in northern virginia lately he did make one recently about housing but then he spoke to one of our reporters josh rosenthal and josh tried to ask him about 
where he was at with trying to make amends for the uh, uproar over the blackface. And Northam says, well, we've turned the page. Right. A lot of NAACP leaders didn't care for that. They said, you know, we'll we'll decide, Governor, when we when we turn the page on this. It, it, he doesn't seem to be close to ever resigning. No. He's got three years left. So do we play out the rest of this term as kind of like this phantom governor and Terry McAuliffe steps in when he can and fills that ceremony, you know, that role of campaigner in chief? What, where are they at with this? Is this a functional way to, to run well, a government? Well, I think we're going to find out fairly soon, actually, with this special session on gun control, because uh, following the, the tragedy, the shooting, the shootings in Virginia Beach, as you know, Governor Northam has called a special session of the legislature to uh, consider new gun control mm-hmm. legislation, which the Democrats are very enthusiastic about and the Republicans will uh, try to block. And I think that the, if how he this is a big effort by him not only to push forward on gun control, which is an issue that the Democrats think will be a winner for them in November, but it's also an effort for him to sort of reestablish himself as, as having some influence and some, and some uh, clout within the Democratic Party. So let's see how that works. If he basically sort of comes out of that, and this is just in the next few weeks, if, if he sort of comes out of that with having some kind of success, either getting gun control legislation or, in, from the Democrats' point of view, putting the Republicans on the spot over it politically mm-hmm. and sort of making it a winning issue potentially for the Democrats in November, that I think he would have, you know, basically moved on at least in, in on one big issue and, and that would sort of help uh, put the, the the scandal in the rearview mirror. But it's it's going to be there for the rest of his term. And obviously with the Fair, Justin Fairfax scandal and the Mark Herring scandal, the, and now Joe Morrissey, mm-hmm. I mean, these scandals are going to be there. It's going to be a cloud over the governorship. It's just a question of whether it really cripples him indefinitely or whether he can still be effective to some extent going forward. But gun control, gun control is really hard and if you're going to go after gun control as a chief executive you need to be at the height of your political power and i'm thinking about governor hogan over over in maryland governor hogan in the wake of the great mills high school shooting proposed some gun control measures which drew the ire of the nra and was able eventually to get some things passed to get guns out of the hands of repeat criminals to have red flag legislation that somebody could warn authorities or somebody who was dangerous, who was in possession of a weapon, things like that. That that doesn't come easily. And I wonder, is this special session that Northam has called more along the lines of I've tried something, I'm going to do something? Or there's any real because it's only really important if you get something done. Right. Otherwise, you're just claiming victory as a. Uh, no, I, I no, I think this is a win-win for Northam. Yeah. Even if he doesn't get anything done. Yes, because even if he doesn't get anything done, he accomplishes two things. First of all, the polls indicate that gun control is a winning issue for Democrats in uh, in Virginia. And so if the if the, they have this session and the Republicans block anything, which I think is a very good chance, then the Democrats can point to this and say, "Hey, look, 
we, you know, in the wake of this horrible uh, tragedy, the, we, you know, we tried to do what they call common sense gun regulation, and the Republicans stopped us. And the only way to move forward on this issue is to elect Democrats in the Senate and the House in November, so they can basically make it a political issue. Now, of course, the Republicans, uh, it, 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 it helps them in this to the extent that they stand strong for gun rights, their basis for gun rights, and they can say, you got to elect us to 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 protect your rights to have uh, to have guns without you know with, with fewer regulations but i think the polls indicate and the democrats certainly believe that this issue has shifted in the last few years and it's more in their favor than it was before uh so even if they don't get anything through they can make it a political issue and then the second reason it's a winner for northam is for just what we were talking about is that it diverts attention mm-hmm. from his biggest problem which is the lack of resolution on the blackface scandal Want to shift over across the river, uh, take a look at the district. There's some uh, things going on right now in D.C. government which are um, unprecedented. One of them being we are locked in a tug of war right now between the D.C. Council over the budget that it has passed and D.C.'s own chief financial officer. He will not certify the D.C. budget, does not care for the way some of the money has been moved around. Um are, are we looking at the kind of standoff that we see on the federal level where D.C.'s local government could wind up in a budget crisis here and we can We'd, face some kind of shutdown? Well, there's definitely a risk of that. Uh, the good news is that both sides want to avoid uh, that a, a shutdown or a crisis like that. The, the bad news is that it's not at all clear where a compromise would lie between these two. I mean, basically, the the council wants it's all over about forty seven million dollars, which is in the accounts uh, of the which has been in the accounts of the convention authority, the tourism authority uh, called Events D.C. And the council wants to spend that money on well, half of it to do repairs on public housing and half of it to avoid increasing hotel taxes. Uh, but the chief financial officer, uh, Jeff DeWitt, says, no, you can't do that. That money has to stay where it is because it's been promised uh, to pay back bondholders or basically to provide a reserve to make sure that bondholders you know, who lent money to the convention authority in the past are going to get repaid. So it would look and the, the reason this is a crisis mm-hmm. is that the independent chief financial officer ever since the financial crises of, in the city in the 1990s has to certify the budget. And if if he doesn't, then it can't go to the mayor. It can't go to Congress. There's no budget. And then we would have the kind of crisis then shutdown risk that we've seen at the federal level. The the problem Ordinarily, you would say, "Okay, well, the chief financial officer, he's there, you know, to make sure the council doesn't overspend, to make sure the council doesn't mismanage. He's got the upper, you know, more. He has the moral high ground. Usually one would say that. But in this case, it's more complicated because the chief financial officer blew it uh, a few years ago and basically misallocated uh, forty nine million dollars of this money, this money that the council wants to spend now. It was supposed to have that money now. It was basically he gave he allowed uh, 
$49 million that was supposed to go to the general fund where the council could spend it instead to go into the reserves of the convention authority. So he shouldn't have done that. He says, yeah, that's too bad. We blew it, but it's too late now to fix it legally without violating these pledges to the bondholders. The council is saying, forget that. You don't get to you know, make a mistake and allocate money that we want to spend the way that you know, we were elected to to make, we were elected to make these decisions. We want to do this, so it's not. So there's really good arguments on both mm-hmm. sides, and it's not clear how it's going to get resolved. But both sides right now look pretty dug in in their positions, mm-hmm. and that's why people are worried that this could lead to the kinds of crisis or you know financial uh, deadlock that you were describing. You know, when you look at the issue of housing in this district right now, it. It has become a bit of a live wire lately. A couple of months ago, there was a protest out of the side of a cell phone store that is known for playing go-go music. It's the indigenous, uh, traditional, wonderful music of the District of Columbia. Somebody in one of the new high-rises around the cell phone store made a complaint about the volume of music, and that touched off something which I don't think a lot of of the district officials were prepared for. It became not about whether or not people could play go-go music or whether they could play things over a loudspeaker live. It became about whose neighborhood is this? And is there a place for native Washingtonians in what has traditionally been their own neighborhood? And more and more, in more and more neighborhoods across this district as redevelopment comes in, gentrification comes in a lot of people are feeling that there is no longer a place for them in their own neighborhoods the go-go protests have kind of morphed into this anti-gentrification debate and protest the mayor mayor muriel bowser was interrupted the other night with a protest during one of her um, public presentations Uh, she which was rare for Muriel Bauer, kind of shot back at them at the end and said, one thing you're never going to say about Muriel Bowser is that I'm a liar. But, you know, a lot of times, Bob, very big protests start over small, small things. You know, the Arab Spring was, was launched over a Tunisian food streets vendor. Um, this thing right now is growing by the week. Did D.C. officials seem to understand what they've got on their hands here and the feeling of a lot of folks that there really is no place for them in this new D.C. that's being built? Well, I think the officials are very aware of the strong feelings about the gentrification issue. I think that is the number one issue because, you know, in I, the district I right asked now. the mayor about this one time, and she looked at me a bit puzzled that I was even asking the question. But how well, could you for suggest that I was not preventing gentrification well i think her her point of view is that we're spending more money than any on uh affordable housing than we as a city are putting more money into the affordable housing trust fund Mm -hmm. than any other big city is on a per capita basis by far i mean it is people around the country point to washington as an example of Mm -hmm. a city that really is uh paying a lot and doing a lot 
in financial terms to try to support affordable housing. And I think Bowser's argument would be, and her administration's argument would be, is, you know, you can't put this on us. We're doing the best we can. We're doing better than anybody else to try to protect affordable housing. The problem is that the it's not nearly enough to actually slow down the process, much less stop the process. The market forces in, and, and cultural and demographic forces, which is basically young to oversimplify a bit, it's basically young white millennials want to live in the city. They want to have urban amenities. They don't want to live in the suburbs. Uh, and and developers are basically redeveloping huge chunks of the city to accommodate them. And it's pushing up rents and pushing up housing prices and uh, forcing longtime residents who are mostly uh, African-American and middle class or working class uh, to either to either have to leave their neighborhoods or at least feel like their neighborhoods are being changed in ways that they don't that aren't familiar to them and in many ways they don't like and that's why that go-go music uh, issue uh, had such resonance because basically African Americans who'd been there for a long time well, it, didn't it, it, like yeah. and new was, co- new whites right. uh, uh, you know criticizing their music but it was organic absolutely as yeah. well too and, and and genuine in that you know, this didn't come from the news media. Oh, not at all. This didn't no. come from you know some outside force. <laughs> this came from the neighborhoods. This came from the people, and and this this is the reason that I think that this issue maybe has more power than a lot of the f- debates that we have had locally in 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 district politics, because this really does get to the heart of a lot of people who built this city, and now feel either not welcome in it or pushed out. Right. Look, if you look at Bowser's rhetoric when she ran for mayor, I mean, this is the issue she wanted to approach. I mean, she talked about the money she put into affordable housing and she wanted, you know, inclusive growth. She the, the idea was that the we'd keep the economy growing, which, in you know, necessarily in current economic terms means more development and more. Uh, well-to-do people, largely white, moving into the city. Uh, But she's wanted it to be inclusive so that it would basically allow people who have been here to stay. And she's put a lot of effort into that and a lot of money into that. But as I said before, the market forces are so strong that the city would have to spend many times more Mm -hmm. than it's spending now in order to actually slow down the process and and allow these these uh, lower income people uh, to survive the the rise in rents and the and the cost of living. I didn't want to let you go before we talked about Maryland as well too. So let's let's complete the triangle here. That's um, right. Hit them Governor, all. Th- hit all three. Hit them all three. Touch all bases. Governor Larry Hogan announced this week or recently that he's not going to run for president of the United States. Um, I had not expected him to run for president of the United States, and he's not going to do. that. So what was the point of all of that, Bob? What was the point of going to Iowa, of going to New Hampshire, of kind of touching down in those spots? Was that about 2020 or was that about 2024? Uh, well, we don't know for sure because we don't have uh, you know, 100% access to the inside of Larry Hogan's brain. But the my, my impression is that he did take seriously the possibility of running in 2020 he is, a, a, I wouldn't say he's a never Trump mm-hmm. Republican, but he's certainly been much, much more critical of Trump 
than you know the vast majority of Republican office holders, and I think he really is dismayed by some of the things Trump has done, and he wants to reclaim the Republican Party for the the sort of moderate and and less uh, confrontational and divisive uh, uh, principles that that he has you know says he stands for. So I think he was seriously considering running as an alternative to Trump within the Republican Party. But he always said that he wasn't going to do it unless he thought he had a chance to win, to actually win. Now, I always thought that if that were the criteria... That nobody, he, nobody run for anything. That, that, well, I've always thought if that were the criteria that he wouldn't run for this yeah. because I thought there's no chance that he could win the Republican nomination the way the, the Republican Party is right now. I mean, he could win some primaries in northeast states or liberal states, but he never could win in, in the south or in, uh, in the, the prairie states or uh, other sort of rock rib Republican states. So I thought yeah. so th- I think he basically ended up conclu- concluding that. Although he was interested, he couldn't win. So then it was, a, so what's he going to do next? He can't run for governor again. Mm-hmm. So I think he's now thinking maybe he'll run uh, for the president in 2024. What did you make of President Trump not going after Larry Hogan when these whispers were allowed? You know, the president lives here. He hears these stories. He must have heard these stories that there was this governor on his doorstep <clears throat> thinking about challenging him in the Republican primary. President Trump didn't say anything about Larry Hogan. That's a very good point. What do we make of that? Well, I think that Hogan was, I I think that Trump basically figured until he actually runs against me, you know, why should I go out and attack another Republican unless Hogan, Hogan were really attacking him Doesn't seem that in nasty way? Nasty. That's true. But he, yeah. I, I think Hogan, I'd have to go back and look, but my impression was that Hogan didn't attack Trump in the sort of really direct and nasty ways that would get Trump's attention and lead him to fire back. Mm-hmm. Um, the, or was he just so far under the radar that it just never That also is true. It's, it's sort of uh, an insult there to Hogan is like, you're not worth my time to insult. The uh, it's, it's a good question. I mean, certainly Hogan gave him enough reason to to attack Hogan gave Trump enough reason to attack Hogan if he'd wanted to but for whatever whatever reason he chose not to he apparently one time when they talked Hogan and Trump Trump was really impressed at how well Hogan how good high Hogan's approval ratings were in a purple in a blue state not mm-hmm. a purple state Maryland's yeah. about as blue as you can get yeah. and the blue's your tie and <laughs> the the and Trump was want he wants to have that kind of approval ratings in a blue state too. So he was sort of impressed by Hogan's success. But obviously, if if Trump wanted to copy Larry Hogan, he'd basically <laughs> behave totally differently. So he is, uh, you know, it's very hard to know exactly what was going on there. How's how's life at the Washington Post these days? Everything we're on top of the world at the Washington Post. Uh, in the you know after the two thousand eight two thousand nine recession. Mm-hmm. The we had to we really we were losing money and we had to cut staff a lot and uh, people were predicting our demise and and writing our obituaries the prematurely and now everything is going extremely well that's partly because 
Jeff Bezos, the, the founder and CEO of Amazon, bought us and covered our losses for a while. And now we're earning money, and but he's continuing to invest, and we're expanding. The staff is growing uh, pretty steadily, the national staff especially, and the digital uh, digital journalism, though we've just expanded our technology coverage dramatically. Uh, we have the best editor in America and Marty Baron, um, who was actually hired by the previous regime, uh, the Graham family, before they sold to the to the uh, to Bezos hired Marty Baron. Anybody who uh, watched uh, the movie Spotlight, yes, know, uh, uh, Marty, yeah, Lee, by um, Michael Keaton. No, no, Leave Schre- Leave Schreiber Lee played Schreiber. Marty Baron. In the, in the movie, yeah, he right. was yeah, yeah. De- dead on, yeah. perfect uh, portrayal of Marty Baron, and um, so the Graham family hired him, and Bezos, to his credit, kept him. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, we're, you know, then of course Trump, you know, for us and for other national media, Trump's been very good mm-hmm. because there's so much interest in the news. I was at an event one night with the, the publisher. We get a lot of traffic. Times, uh, Arthur Schultzberger, and he said that, you know, in a way, um, Donald Trump, for all that he has done as far as railing against the media, for many news organizations, has led to a renaissance. Absolutely. Uh, of of news media in, in that way. Um, so life is good. Yeah, it's really good. We also have a new, uh, well, it's been several years now. We've been in new offices. You know, we're, I've we been moved, to your new offices. We've been out of the, the, the building where we were for many years, where we were mm-hmm. for the Watergate yeah. coverage that was portrayed in the movie All the President's Been. That building's now been torn down. Yeah. And we're in new, very nice offices. We're in Franklin Square now. For, uh, yeah, yeah, facing Franklin Square on K Street at 13th. So it's, yeah, no, it's uh, it's very gratifying. For people like me who've been there for many, many decades, The it, and I was there sort of for the fat years and then for the really mm-hmm. lean years, and now it's fat again, and it's very gratifying to see the recovery. One of the great news organizations in this country. Uh, I would not say the greatest because I got a lot of friends that work over the New York Times as well, too, and they take exception to that. But Robin McCartney, the senior regional correspondent uh, from The Washington Post, has been kind enough to uh, be our guest uh, this time on the On the Hill podcast. Bob, we thank you. Tom, great to be here. Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure. It a pleasure. And that will do it for this time. You've been listening to the On the Hill podcast here from the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. I'm Tom Fitzgerald. We thank you. We'll see you back here next time. On the hill. Volvieron. Los McNugget Buddies are back at McDonald's. Y ahora tienen un nuevo look. Diseñado por el streetwear designer Kerwin Frost. Cada buddy tiene su propio vibe. Pero cuando el squad está completo, se ven fire. Complete your buddy squad ordenando the Kerwin Frost box. Cada caja incluye un buddy. Tu elección de una Big Mac o unos Timpy's Chicken McNuggets. Papitas medianas y un refresco mediano. Disponible desde el 11 de diciembre. Para pa pa pa. En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias.